0: One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey, everybody. It's me, Sam Jacobs. You're listening to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Thank you for listening, by the way. Today on the show, we've got a great guest. You can just tell sometimes when somebody is just the consummate executive and professional, and somebody that, you know, is in a different league sometimes than some of the, than other operators. And and this is why sometimes they get those big jobs. So this is Jason Holmes. He's the president and chief operating officer of Showpad. They're growing very, very quickly. They've got offices both in, in Europe and in the US. I'm based out of Chicago. And Jason walks through sort of his career journey beginning. All the way back, and, and through, I think, with a company called Hyperion, but but also important stints at Oracle, at Omniture, uh, particularly at Marketo, uh, pre-IPO to the Take Private Transaction and now at Showpad. So he walks through how he does that, what the lessons are as he tries to grow and develop, how he takes on new functions, which I think is a really important skill set for people. If you're going to be an executive, you're going to inherit things like marketing or customer success, and you're not going to know how to do those things, or at least you're not going to have direct experience. So you need a playbook for how to learn, essentially. And that's what Jason walks us through. So it's a really, really good interview. Showpad's doing some really, really interesting Things in sales enablement, and I'm excited to share it with you. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. We've got two sponsors, as you know. The first, we're so excited to have Lucidchart as a continuing sponsor. Lucidchart Sales Solution is the leading account planning platform for modern sales organizations. With Lucidchart, you can visually map out key contacts and crucial account data to uncover critical insights that will allow you to close bigger deals faster. Go to lucidchart.com forward slash sales for more information. So, again, you know, we talk a lot about this, but if you're, if you're in enterprise sales, you need some kind of visual tool. It's complicated, and you need some kind of visual tool to map out the organization, to identify the preferences of all of the key decision makers. There are so many decision makers within enterprise organizations at this point, so you need something like Lucidchart. If it's not Lucidchart, it should be something like it to help you visually articulate the organizational structure that you are trying to sell into, and the preferences and power of the people that you're trying to sell into. So I think it's something worth checking out, lucidchart.com forward slash sales. Also, our second sponsor is Outreach. That's Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps, really all, all reps, customer success reps, marketing reps, by enabling them to humanize communications at scale From automating the soul-sucking manual work that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best, Outreach has your back. If you haven't checked out the Sales Engagement book, please do so. Written by Max, Manny, and Mark. It's at Amazon. It's called Sales Engagement, so it should be pretty easy to find. And um, without further ado, let us listen to Jason Holmes, President and Chief Operating Officer of Showpad. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today, we're incredibly excited to be talking to Jason Holmes. Jason is the president and COO of Showpad, which is a a leading global uh, sales enablement provider. He's responsible for marketing, sales, customer success, and partnerships globally, and uh, he's really focused on creating customer value through making salespeople successful every day. Jason was previously COO at Marketo, uh, pre-IPO through the Take Private transaction, and has spent time in global executive roles at Adobe, Omniture and Oracle. He also holds an MBA from Northern Illinois University. Jason, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Sam. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, we're we're super excited to have you. So the way that we typically like to start is, uh, and I just read a little bit about it, but is is your is your baseball card, which is a brief synopsis of your background and career. So we know your name, Jason Holmes. We know pr- your your title, which is President and COO, and we know the name of the company, which is Showpad. But tell us a little bit about Showpad. Who who are they? Uh, what do they do? What do you do? And and give us the pitch.
1: Sure. So Showpad is uh, is a company in the sales enablement space. Uh, or category in the tech industry. Chopad is a company that really focuses on making content findable, making sure that sellers are prepared, making sure that buyers are engaged, modern buyers are engaged with modern sellers, and ultimately providing incredibly in-depth analytics back to marketing organizations and sales organizations and how they can continue to improve. So that's the the company in the space in uh, in sales enablement. And uh, and my role here is is much as you said, My job is to help uh, grow this company, for sure, but also make sure that we grow this company by making sure that we're acquiring the right customers and making those customers wildly successful in uh, in their experience with Showpad and ultimately in their ability to sell in a modern buying world
0: very good we will we will dive into that topic uh you know those topics deeply just to understand a little bit about sort of the stage of growth that Showpad's in tell us like the rough arr revenue range a little bit about the financing obviously how many employees don't tell us any confidential information but help us frame the size and the growth stage of the organization
1: Showpad today is uh is an excessive 50 million recurring revenue in uh, in euros actually we're a european headquartered company in ghent belgium uh, with a u.s headquarters here in chicago illinois we have almost exactly half of our operations and revenue in europe and the other half in the u.s so we very much for a small to medium-sized tech scale up are operating in uh in both locations we have wow. about 450 people right now would expect to end this year somewhere north of 500 people and uh continue to you know continue to just have strong growth and uh, and great customer success as we go forward
0: well, congratulations on all of that growth. So beyond the baseball card, we also love to know there's a lot of folks out there listening that that want to one day be Jason Holmes, if not literally, perhaps figuratively. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get here? How did you, how does one become a president
1: and CEO? So what, what has been your path? I think there's a number of different routes. So I'll, I'll give my path as, as uh, probably one that's a little bit less Less common than uh, than perhaps others, so my path is essentially my last real job was probably twenty plus years ago at a at a at a company where I acquired software to solve a financial reporting problem. Ultimately, decided that working in software would be more interesting, and so entered into the tech industry through a consulting role inside of a technology company at a company called Hyperion as part of my journey at Hyperion ramped up uh, over the course of 10 years to be running the consultancy and pre-sales organizations as a VP for the Americas quite a while ago and managed to then acquire into Oracle left Oracle went to a company called Omniture ran worldwide consulting at Omniture as well acquired into Adobe ran global consulting at Adobe so you'll see this theme of first going from on premise to SaaS uh, is a big switch that I made. The other is going from consultant and consultancy to include all things post sale, so owning the customer experience, which as the world has transitioned from on premise to SaaS, Actually, matters perhaps a lot more than it did in the on-premise time, because as you know, in the world of su- subscription software, customers can fire you every single year, and so the need to have strong executive presence and an exec staff and in leadership positions that understand customers and can drive customer value and customer retention is instrumental in growing at you know at some point a highly profitable uh, SaaS recurring revenue business in uh, in in the industry in which we all work. So my path has been very much. You know, from the finance world into the marketing world, from on-premise into recurring revenue, and from professional services through all things post-sale, and then in, up to and including uh, all things customer-related, from marketing, sales, customer success, support, partners and channels, and so forth.
0: First of all, that's incredibly impressive. And I love the comment that you made uh, that the customer experience imperative has really been underscored by the movement from on-prem to SaaS. Was it your experience that in sort of the world of on-prem, the systems were so hard to rip out that, you know, it it really wasn't a choice for most organizations to move to
1: different providers? I think there was first, yes, systems were much, switching costs were just much steeper, uh, I would think would be uh, certainly the first Thing And I think the second is the leverage. So much of the leverage sat with the vendors, right? The, the technology providers who they've already got all of your money as opposed to the maintenance stream. So this idea of firing them just didn't really come to the surface very much. And so I think very much the, the post sales organizations in the world of on premise were the, you know, the no, the no news is good news departments. Uh, as opposed to today, I mean, what's happening with the customer experience retention? You know, gross and net retention, how much you're growing your base. I mean, those are headline items in board meetings, in investor decks, and so forth. And and I think are things where you know, you basically have a fairly limited number of people that really understand the intricacies of uh, of how to improve them, and, and ultimately what they mean to the business over the long term.
0: Yeah. When you think, you've mentioned this transition from being sort of a consultant running a services team, global services teams, and then moving into uh, sort of broad general operating functions. What's been a, I guess the first question I have is what do you attribute your success to over the last 20 years when you reflect on the skills, the tools, soft or hard that enabled your continued growth and development? What do you, what do you think those are?
1: I think first is an, a never ending curiosity to learn and to continue to improve and reinvent myself. So I, I think that's something I take very, very seriously. You know, I take, I, I try to listen two ears, one mouth, listen a lot, talk a little less, um, take in a lot of information and, and adjust and it's okay to be wrong and not be too strong headed, strong minded. So I think there's, there are a few things there and just curiosity and adaptation and reinvention. Uh, I think a little bit more, you know, uh a little bit more practically, leadership and hiring, you know, acquiring, onboarding, training, and making teams work, I think very much transcends all the organizations in the business. So I think a great leader, or someone who, you know, appears to be a great leader in the sales organization, if they're a great leader at heart and in their capability, they're actually going to be able to build a great team as you give them more responsibility. In my case, I was able to build great teams in service and as I get on into these sorts of roles that are broader in scope in terms of different dimensions and functions, you know, job one is acquire, onboard, and create a great team of leaders. And, uh, and I think that very much uh, transcends the growth. And then, last, I would say is, you know, as we would say in my time at Marketo, you know, we live in a world of facts. And so I very much live in a world of facts of analytics, data you know, help me understand, show me how we measured that, like making sure that we have a fact-based operating system as a business is incredibly important. So the business is not run based on the last anecdote, the last conversation, the last person that talked to the CEO and so forth. And so I I think that that fact-based approach to the running the business is, is instrumental and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, one dimension of the business, one department or all departments of the business, I think it's universal.
0: And particularly in your role as COO, what's your perspective on kind of single source of truth analytics to the point of a fact-based business? In the sense that sometimes in organizations there'll be an operation, a revenue operations team that sort of reports up through sales. They have numbers. Sometimes the finance team has numbers. And then other organizations have said, even if there are imperfections within. XYZ data source we're only going to use this data source so that everybody's reading I'm mixing a ton of metaphors here but reading from the same hymnal do you have a perspective on sort of where data needs to sit and whose responsibility is to own it within this within large organizations
1: i, I definitely do so I would say first and foremost you know I call it the the trailer park of operations teams that exist inside of companies I think create more division than uh, than collaboration in teams and so for example here at showpad and I firmly believe, I know it's not easy, but I firmly believe having an operations team from a revenue standpoint, so marketing ops, sales ops, customer success ops, services ops, under one leader is essential to driving, you know, first, integrity in the data, and second, making sure that, you know, you don't have all of the politics and evils that live by having different numbers in different departments supporting different agendas. And uh, and so, I have definitely very much created that as a unified team that reports to me directly. In this role, I think so, and and I think their job is largely operational reporting of actuals and reporting and uh, roll-up of forecasts and budgets. I think then you also have a finance team who I see a very close partnership between the, the revenue operations team and the finance organization. But I rely on finance for all things actuals, and so all things actuals need to come out of finance. They should be reflected exactly the same in the finance reports and in the operational team's reports, and I also rely on finance for all things p related, and cash flow and balance sheet and so forth related. So I think there is an intersection point in revenue and bookings between these two teams. Actuals come out of finance, everything comes out of the operations team, but I think beneath that it's a lot of operational reporting and rev ops, and I think it's a lot of PL cash flow and basic financial, financial statement reporting that comes out of finance
0: makes a lot of sense. One more question, and then obviously we we'll want to talk about the, the topic of the day, which is sales enablement and, and probably revenue enablement perhaps. But when you are inheriting new functions, what's your to your point, right? That you, you mentioned that leadership transcends operational departments within an organization. But nevertheless, as you are running a global consulting business or a global services business and you're given the opportunity to run customer success or to run the post-sale experience for your customers, what are your first? What's your action plan as you inherit an entirely new function to make sure that you uh, get up to speed, that you're competent on it, that you enable and empower the people below you, and also an important part of my question: recruit great people, some of whom are going to know more about that function than you are, given that you're sitting on top of it at that point.
1: So I think the first thing is uh, is I'm I'm definitely a style of person that when I inherit new functions, the first t- thing I do is I listen to the people that have been doing the job for, in all likelihood, you know, far longer than I have at a far more detailed level. And so my job at first is just to learn what I can from them, which generally means creating sort of a safe space of, hey, you know, I know things, not all things are great and not all things are broken here, so help me understand what's working, what's not working, and and what should we do more of or something along those lines. So, um, so I, I definitely take that approach internally. I also am adamant about engaging and talking with customers directly to understand from their point of view. It can be anecdotal for sure because you're not going to talk to you know all thousand or fifteen hundred customers in the case of someone like Chopad, you know. But it is important to get that direct voice of the customer: what's working in an enterprise, what's not, what's working in mid market, what's not. I also then though will start to revert to how are we measuring success in uh, in this particular group and. And making sure that we're clear on the few, you know, KPIs or metrics that we want to track. So are we, you know, I inherited a team once upon a time, and there was a consulting team, and they didn't measure utilization. And I said, well, that seems like the silliest thing. And so I waited 30 days, and I said, okay, we're only going to track one thing for the next 90 days. I just want to get this one metric in and make sure everyone understands it and and starts to orbit around it. So I I very much will, will start to go down a path of how do I measure success, And, uh, and then ultimately, you know, as I look to hire people, one of the dynamics you'll see, uh, that I don't subscribe to is people that move from company to company and they bring like 30 friends with them everywhere, figuring that those friends, you know, I've worked with them in the past. I can move quickly. And that's a great plan. Um, I very much like to, Understand the business at a granular level, understand the metrics, understand how things are trending from a metric standpoint, understand the personalities that have been running that piece of the business for a period of time, and then make determinations, still the right people or not. If we're going to introduce new people, what is the right type of person that's going to make sense in this situation? And so, like, it's a very careful process versus many people, I think, take the easy route, which is, you know, go find people I know or go find people that on paper look like the right people, even though they may not be the right people. I think really understanding how those people and new leaders tick and matching them with the problems you're trying to solve at this point in the history of the company is something it, it also takes time and it takes a lot of care. But I think it ultimately results in much better outcomes in terms of people that come, they succeed, and they stay, uh, and they drive consistency in that customer experience or in that selling experience or marketing experience over the medium to long term.
0: Makes a lot of sense. When you think about compensation, this is just a topic. I was just at a breakfast actually this morning, and we were talking about how uh, more and more functions within revenue, at least this is the perspective of people at the breakfast, are moving to more traditional a, a bigger percentage of their compensation is being put into uh, metrics-driven bonuses. This is come came from a marketing person. What's your perspective on incentive comp for functions that have traditionally not had a tremendous amount of their compensation in incentives, uh, in commission payments or bonus payments, like customer success, for example, or marketing? Do you align everybody around, you know, highly incentivized commission plans in the same way that salespeople, or do you have a different
1: approach? I believe that... From a comp standpoint, making sure that your comp plan and the expected behavior around a comp plan is aligned with the goals of the business is like fundamental to making sure that the business works well. Like people work well with one another and people strive for the right goals, and that is like the most captain obvious statement. But at the same time, the number of companies and people and leaders that I see that say, "Well, we want X to happen. We're going to comp a little bit differently than that, but people will do the right thing." It's like all things being equal, why don't you just line up the comp with the exact expected behavior and, and it will actually go much better for you. And so, I take incredibly great care to make sure that those things are lined up. So, for example, um, you know customer success managers, what do I want them to do? I want them to keep and grow the business. And so, I comp them on keeping and I comp them on growing. Marketing and sales, like the marketing, sales, love, love affair or divide, depending on your company. Sales is comped on uh, revenue. Uh, I comp... You know, and, and I very much believe marketing is comped on revenue. We don't comp marketing on MQLs or SQOs or pipeline contribution. It's on revenue. So if sales is succeeding, marketing succeeds. If, in the business operations team, they're tied to uh, net bookings. So gross bookings minus churn um, yields a net. And I generally am a very large fan of having as big a percentage as people will tolerate in variable comp. In variable comp plans. So nearly everyone, for example, in the go-to-market organization at Shopad and prior position at Marketo as well, almost everybody had a variable comp plan, and all of those were very carefully aligned to make sure that they were tied toward unified great outcomes for the company, not necessarily like, well, if some like if you pull together like the Jenga set and like try to figure it all out, like is this all gonna land in the right place, even though it seemed highly contrived and confusing. Like, no, just like make it simple, make everyone pointed at the same numbers and, you know, ultimately people will collaborate and you'll get the best outcome.
0: I love it that you said a lot of really important things, I think, in that in that last little snippet. But one of them is is sort of just comping a lot of different functions on the core output, which is revenue. Have you seen a lot? I mean, I guess to, I'm sort of leading the witness, but, the, but it would seem like one of the big a, a potential pitfall is comping marketing organization or even any demand generation function like SDRs on pipeline contribution when necessarily pipeline is an internal metric that is gameable and doesn't align with revenue. Would that be an example totally. of, a, of a potential of a mistake? Potentially, yeah,
1: completely. And so, you know, from my standpoint, it's uh, you know, and, and you can mix them a little. Like in the case of BDRs or SDRs, you know, you can, you know, you can, and we do things like where you have seventy-five percent of the is tied on. SQOs or meeting sets, which are obviously, you have an offset of that where sales has to accept that in order for it to count. And, and that's one you have to keep very close eye on. But a p- piece of it also needs to be on sales success. Like, did, did we actually hit numbers in, in your region or in your segment? And then you share in that success as well. And So like, like yes, be highly productive day-to-day, week-to-week in, in doing meeting sets and in doing um, sales qualified opportunities. But ultimately, you're also not going to get to 100% of your comp if, uh, if the sales team with which you're working isn't succeeding as well. And so I think you've got you've to you've straddle some of them um, uh, in the cases where you can. And I, and I very much have to live, I, I, not just this job, but this job, prior jobs, people that want to come and talk to me about setting comp against something that is not objective. I'm like, step one. You only comp on things that are objective, and so bookings are super objective, and uh, revenue or expense and expense management, very objective. Things that are like the so-and-so's opinion or things that are dragged up and down based on survey scores, based on response rates and all that's like I find them interesting, and I find them good in theory, but make sure you can prove to me that it's scientifically objective, and then we'll talk about how we put it into a comp plan. Otherwise, I go keep it sure. simple. Survey scores meaning like customer satisfaction yep. scores, for yep. example. We track them, we do them, we QBR them, we manage them, tying people's comp to stuff like that. Like when you have a 2% versus a 6% response rate and all of that, you know, providing people upside and accelerated upside on a survey score process, and all, you know, it gets very complicated and starts to feel a little bit like a little bit of fiction land as opposed to facts. And so I, I very much like to live in the world of facts.
0: Love it. You have, you know, you're over 20 years. You've been kind of rising up, rising up, inheriting new functions, as you mentioned. Some of them you didn't have experience in. You went out and listened to customers and you talked to people that were doing the job, etc. Meanwhile, there's a different set of conventional wisdom right now in the high growth environment around uh, stage appropriate leadership. And this idea that you kind of need to slot leaders in that have experience with that specific stage, there's a zero to 10 million stage, there's a 10 to 30, you know, or whatever the stages are, and you kind of need to swap leaders out as you go, I guess the alternative would be to invest in them and invest in their ability to grow and develop. How do you feel about sort of, you know, I I don't know if it's opposing views, but there's probably a philosophy that you have around people's upside and their potential to grow as they encounter new and different
1: challenges. So I have a a very specific point of view on this topic. First, depending on the type of business that you're in, like, let's just, we're in a high growth business. The business is growing faster than people can grow their leadership and management skill sets and careers. It just is like the fact you can't, you can't gain five years of leadership experience in a year and a half. Though the business is growing fast enough that you know the size of the team someone might be managing their complexity of problems they're starting to solve grows exponentially faster than than humans can learn so or most humans can learn so i think there's three approaches you have people that you replace they're just like they were great from zero to ten but now they're just wrong for the business altogether for a variety of reasons i think that's a pretty small subset by the way i think there are people that you top I think those are the majority of the people. You essentially say, Hey, you're a great manager for the CS function, or you're a great sales director. You're not ready to be a VP, but I really want you to stay the sales director for another couple of years while you get more experience. So I'm gonna go outside and I'm gonna go find a VP to have you report to. And the third is the people that you grow. And those are the people that are the sales VP or this, you know, sales director or the CSM who is really ready actually to become a CSM manager or the BDR who really is ready to go take on a BDR manager type position or something like that and you grow those people. So I think the people you replace is the smallest bunch. I think the uh, the people that you can grow is the next smallest bunch, you know, there's probably 20% of the people in that bucket and I think the vast majority of people in these high growth businesses are people that you top. And so I think like being able to figure out especially the grows versus the tops and not getting yourself too wrapped into, I really like that person. I want them to succeed. And then I'm going to hold on too long to the dream of them making it to a VP, even though they just can't and they're not going to be able to get there at the speed we need them to and making sure you're making the right calls at the right times. And I think it's an every year or two process. And for me, it's an ever it's an annual process to go through and make that determination. And I do it quite physically and I do it with the board, did it at Marketo for five years, do the same thing here at Showpad um, annually. And that way it just makes you very clear on where, what work you have to do hiring that needs to be done and where you have, you know, scale weakness inside of your leadership team.
0: That makes a lot of sense. When we think about, well, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just digesting those opportunities and thinking about the people that you grow versus the people that you top. How do you manage the folks that I guess the the, the tension is the judgment that you mentioned, right? Understanding which person falls into which bucket and how to evaluate them. And to the point of your first Mm -hmm. set of comments in an objective way, have you created, or is it as objective as possible? Like does judgment come more into play here or have you helped create some objective performance management system that has clear, clear boundaries, guidelines, expectations around what a VP is such that you can tell that senior director or that director, we, here's what we've, we've, we've previously agreed that this is what a VP does. And we, and here's where you were not able to do that. Is that, is that some, some, part of the system that you've created in, in your roles at Marketo Showpad? I, I would say uh,
1: to some extent in, in a little bit more mature organization like Marketo, the answer is yes. I think in a less mature organization, just in terms of size and systems and what have we written down and what we haven't written down, probably less so uh, in the smaller size businesses. And so I do think it comes uh, with judgment. I also think, frankly, it comes with uh, a couple things. One is being quite open with this philosophy, right? I mean, it's not a secret. Like, people realize that that's how I think and how I operate. And so it's not like a big surprise and people are super disappointed. Uh, don't get me wrong. I know there's some disappointment if, you know, Sally thinks she should be from director to VP and she doesn't get it. But it's not like that's the first time Sally will have ever heard that, you know, as, as being something that, that is a probability because of the infrequency of being able to grow people, so I, I think there's that. I think the other though is just in you know, you'll inter- interact with people whether it's at this company or prior roles that I've had. Uh, no lack of direct feedback, and uh, you know making sure that people are fully grounded in where they are and how I view them, and and I think you know what their growth potential is. And I think if you keep that open dialogue open and as a manager, you're willing to have like a courageous conversation once a month or once a quarter, or even once every six months about, Hey, this is kind of how I'm viewing you. And this is kind of what I'm starting to see develop a little bit and what I'm going to have to do about it. I think to the extent you can have that as an active dialogue. So it's not like blindsided 18 months in. And like, I totally thought I was, you know, like it has to be an ongoing dialogue and conversation between you and different leaders and different people in the team. And that way I think it lands in, uh, in quite a, quite a good place.
0: Yeah. Let's uh let's transition to the the topic du jour, which is sales enablement. So which is the 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 company that you're running right now, the sales enablement space is projected to be worth $2.6 billion by 2024. And so that's a massive amount. I guess my question to you is first of all, when you say that phrase sales enablement, you alluded to it in terms of the showpad technology, but what does it mean? you know, I think a lot of people hear it, Think a lot of people want to put in enablement. I don't know that there's a Wikipedia page that says this is what sales enablement actually clearly means. What does it mean to Showpad? Sales enablement for
1: Showpad means uh, a few things. One, sales enablement is about preparing sellers. The second thing is about engaging buyers. And third, it's about providing analytics as to what's going on in these B2B buying processes to provide that feedback back into sales organizations and into marketing organizations. So in the world of selling, or in the world of preparing and engaging, I think there's two fundamental, like what are the two pieces of technology that largely exist in the sales enablement space. I think there's the, the first big chunk is content, like there's sales content. So PowerPoint presentations, Google Slides, videos, one pagers, access to data sheets and online collateral and so forth. How do you make sure sellers can find that stuff share it with customers, and have those customers engage or those buyers engage with that content. So there's a whole content side of the business. The other side of the business is very much about training, onboarding, coaching new sales reps, having them practice their sales pitches, having managers or peers review those sales pitches, and ultimately be able to give feedback and have this continuous improvement. So the thinking goes, if you can have... like. The best content, if you have the best prepared sellers and you have the best content and the predictable content they're using and words that they're saying in front of buyers, ultimately you can create a better and more engaging buyer experience and a more capable seller that results in better outcomes in terms of sold deals and size of deals and so forth. And uh, and so that's the, I, I think those are the nuts and bolts of it. And if you really think about it, and as I think about it, like this problem has not been meaningfully solved in B2B selling right now. Right? It is like there are CRM systems that are out there. There are marketing automation solutions that provide tons of leads. There's SharePoint and there are co- content management systems for dumping a bunch of digital assets into. But like the systems that the sellers log into and use every day to be successful are things like LinkedIn Sales Navigator, Outreach, Showpad. You know, it's a it becomes a pretty short list of things that they care about and things that they log into to help them do their job more effectively. And Chopin very much lives in that world of making those sellers successful.
0: It seems to me, um, but correct. I, I just I wonder if the the word sales as a modifier to enablement is would one day become superfluous because it seems to me that the things that you're describing, which is providing content, information, insights that the organization has generated to the right person at the right time, is not. A problem that is specific to sales, it may be that sales needs it more acutely. Would you, uh, but that seems to be like a massive opportunity for any company that's delivering answers to questions in real time at the moment that that person in the company
1: needs it. I totally agree with that. I I feel that just in the world of sales, much like Salesforce started with a Salesforce automation solution, and they said, you know, a system of record for service probably would be helpful to bolt on. And then maybe we should get a system of record or something in the lead space with uh, Exact Target and Pardot and so forth. You know, like there's more to be done from a back office standpoint that you get from someone like Salesforce. You know, I, I very much view like this is step one is about sales and, and solving the sales marketing customer buyer divide. But ultimately, and, and frankly, today, customers absolutely use Showpad and our competitors products in the customer success organization and support organization. In marketing organizations, in some cases internally for internal learning solutions and so forth. So there's tons of opportunity. And I think that's the difference between a billion dollar showpad and a $10 billion showpad over time is just growing that audience.
0: It strikes me that, which is true for so many different companies where they have uh, articulated a, a, a software solution to a problem, that you have some pretty deep insights probably into the tangential areas around that problem. So, what I mean specifically is if your solution is delivering assets at the right time, at the right place to the seller or to the buyer. I wonder if you know what assets should be created as a consequence of uh, leveraging them all the time so that companies that are growing that want to build, that want to know what content should we build? How many sales playbooks do we need? What one-pagers should we have? Is that information that maybe your professional services team or somebody at Showpad can help the buyer understand? Because I think a lot of people want to do sales enablement. They're just not quite sure where to start. Like, What is the complete content checklist to make sure that they've got all their bases covered so
1: as part of uh, getting going with with showpad of course like one of the first things we do is let's do a content audit like what does your world look like today in terms of content meaning what are the different assets that you have available and just as importantly in how many places do those assets live inside of the organization and third which is usually the unanswerable question how many of them are actually used by the sales organization or by buyers and then the clearly unanswerable fourth point which is and how are they working like does the does it resonate with the buyer or does not and so we definitely lead customers through this process of understanding their content understanding where it lives understanding how to start centralizing it and then really it's this feedback loop of the goal here I was at a customer meeting yesterday is how can we create the fewest number of assets that have the highest percentage of utilization that ultimately move the needle and get deals closed or get deals progressed or get deals bigger um, over the course of time. And if you think in those terms, you constantly need an analytical feedback loop, consumption, effectiveness, and ultimately it can feed back into, wow, it seems like videos are rocking it well, we should probably do a lot more in the video space and a lot less in the PDF space. And so then you start leaning your content development much more in that direction. And so it's that process of first doing a baselining that we will do from a professional services standpoint with our customers, but then teaching them how to constantly engage that feedback to adjust as they go forward in their sales enablement journey. Is
0: uh, And you mentioned something. Is that true uh, that videos are rocking it? Just because I've been hearing a lot about the growth of video, particularly in sales recently.
1: I would say... Categorically, yes. I would also say that it. we very much market, sell, and implement a horizontal solution. And so, for example, I would say yes. I would say totally yes in the tech vertical, probably not quite as much in like the medical device space and more traditional type industries. So, it there are hot spots and cold spots on different types of assets and different types of content, but, uh, but overall video does seem like something that's doing quite well.
0: That's exciting. Uh, Jason, we w- this has been an incredible conversation. We're sort of coming to, uh, to the end of our, of our time together, but what we like to do in this section of the, of the conversation is, uh, just pay it forward a little bit. You know, you mentioned, um, intellectual curiosity. You mentioned that you're always trying to learn when you think about either books that have really influenced you or, um, I don't know, managers, leaders, CEOs, founders, investors, people that have really influenced you. What comes to mind as some of the, you know, things that you think we should be aware of or learn about with the goal of becoming either a better professional, a better salesperson, or
1: maybe even just a better human? First, I would say the the never stop learning, I the the comments that I see from Bill Gates, for example, who I seldom quote or even think much about, but his comments or his thought around read things that don't necessarily aren't exactly aligned with what your business is because there are so many things you can learn from totally off-base topics and apply them into your day-to-day professional life are actually quite profound. And so... So I think that, you know, that advice of constantly be learning, but don't get siloed into, I'm going to read a bunch of book about, books about tech companies and how to make tech companies successful. That's actually, you're just going to be, you know, breathing a lot of your own exhaust uh, and rereading things that you probably in many cases know today. I would say other things that I focus on beyond reading is, uh, I spend a lot of time listening. I I read something recently by Jeff Bezos said, you know, there, there are people in the world who are pretty smart people who listen a lot, change their mind a lot. And it's because they continue to take in data. I watch people consistently who they form their opinion and then they do, it's like a validation bias or something like that, where they go looking for evidence to support the decision they've already made. I think that's one of the biggest evils you have in, in executive leadership inside of companies. So I, uh, I definitely would think uh, think in those terms. I think being human, being pleasant uh, to the people around you is incredibly important. I'm convinced. Like you can have companies that are led by crazy dictators who are intolerable to be around, and they can succeed. I mean, I think we've seen that. I actually think you can do it the other way. And uh, and so to your comment on being a better human, you know, I I definitely view this opportunity to. You know, Showpad is a great example for me right now, which is a place where you can actually be who you are. You can actually drive hard, but you can actually be pleasant and kind and create a great culture while creating a great company at the same time. And so uh, those are a few things that uh, that come top of mind for me.
0: Makes sense. Uh, Jason, if people are listening and they want to reach out to you. Maybe they want to work for Showpad or they want to become a customer. Is that okay if they reach out to you? And if so, do you have a preferred uh, channel, uh, email, LinkedIn, Twitter? How do you prefer to be contacted by strangers, if at all?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, well, there's www.showpad.com for people that are uh, in the market for sales enablement or think maybe they ought to be now. I'm also happy to have people contact me at my Showpad email, jason.holmes at showpad.com and uh and linkedin is something you know like many people i i spend a fair amount of time on so definitely very accessible there as well
0: wonderful jason thanks so much for being on the show and we'll talk to you this friday for friday fundamentals thank you sam appreciate it hey everybody it's sam's corner what a great interview with jason holmes he packed a lot into those 38 or so minutes I want to recap some of it because get out a notepad maybe, I don't know, do whatever you want. Uh, You don't work for me, you work for yourself. But, um, But here's some key things that I think are really important to take away. First of all, I just think that a lot of people are talking about revenue as the key, which sounds obvious, the key metric, the key KPI for revenue organizations. What do I mean by that? not comping marketing organization, the marketing organization on things like MQLs, leads, pipeline contribution. It may feel like those are objective metrics. We have a lead scoring system in place. It gives this many points every single time we deliver this many MQLs, but it's not revenue and it is gameable and it's controlled oftentimes by the marketing organization itself. More importantly, perhaps even than MQLs or sales qualified opportunities or anything else is when you're comping the customer success team. And Jason was saying that every revenue team should have a portion of their comp as variable. I I think maybe. Uh, I don't know if I completely agree, but I think it's an interesting insight. But the point is, don't put accelerators and revenue compensation into non-revenue metrics like customer satisfaction or NPS, a survey that you might run of customers. That's not It's not objective enough and it's not tied to business outcomes clearly and objectively enough to warrant cash compensation. So just try to align the cash generation of the business with the cash distribution of the business to its employees. That's I think pretty important to remember whenever you can. So some organizations take that to to an I don't know if it's an extreme, but they take it somewhere, which is that they refuse to pay salespeople until the money is collected from the customer. I think it's very common. It's particularly common in larger organizations where the dollar, the check sizes are very, very large. You know, one of the ways you can solve that instead of having uh, this comp plan that pays people out over a tremendously extended period of time is simply to demand upfront payment from your customers and then pay people uh, when you collect that cash. I do think that as the business reaches a certain scale, though, the company can subsidize uh, the distance to some extent, providing you have the right policies in place so that the salespeople aren't shouldering the balance sheet burden of the company. I understand that CFOs want alignment, but... Uh Salespeople as individual contributors don't have equity in the company or at least the same equity as the CFO or the CEO CEOs went out and raised a lot of venture capital You can use that money to subsidize the commission payments of the salespeople in my opinion That's just my opinion if you have a problem with it uh, I'll tell you how to contact me in a little bit also, uh, you know this idea about stage appropriate leadership Jason believes in it I'm more skeptical to be completely honest, but uh, but He's uh, the president and CEO of Showpad, and I'm not, so maybe listen to him. But he has three buckets for uh, for evaluating talent as the organization achieves hyperscale. Three buckets are remove, grow, and top. He says about 20% of the people are, are grow, about 5% are remove, and so you've got 3 quarters of the people that are top, meaning you're, you're gonna have people that you bring in over them. If they're the director of sales, you're gonna hire a VP of sales. If they're a senior director of demand gen, you're gonna hire a VP of marketing. If they're a VP of marketing, you're gonna hire a chief marketing officer. You have to be careful about that. The big thing there is managing expectations appropriately and making it clear that that is your philosophy. And then I think also, again, having objective, clearly defined and articulated guidelines, responsibilities, requirements of the job so that it's not just, listen, I don't think you're there yet. And then the person says, well, what do I need to do to get there? And you don't have an answer. I think you need to have an answer in my opinion. Write down what you think the job of a VP or CMO is is, or should be, how it is different from the current job, and then you can articulate the gaps between this person and uh, what your aspirations are. I really hope, though, that uh, you're not using this framework uh, as a a mechanism for unconscious slash conscious bias, where because that person is young or because they are uh, a woman or because they don't look the part using the Moneyball framework, that that they're not going to get the opportunity to step up. I think that the people that are the most talented in the organization that are demonstrating capabilities at least deserve a chance. Once you've articulated those guidelines, give them that chance to succeed. At any rate, I interspersed a little bit of my thoughts with Jason's, but uh, go back and listen to, that, to, to the pod because I think he really does a tremendous job of articulating the job of a president and CEO and providing a framework for how to look at an organization from a strategic perspective. So, Thought it was a great interview. If you want to uh, reach me, you can. I'm on LinkedIn. It's linkedin.com forward slash the word in and then forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you would be so kind as to rate the show on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. Please give us five stars and write something really uh, funny and endearing about me personally. Uh, Thank you. And uh, obviously I'm kidding about that last part. And and we want to thank our sponsors, Lucidchart and their sales solution, uh, which is the leading account planning platform for modern sales orgs and outreach, the leading sales engagement platform.